Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Malini Shur, Senior Lecturer in Anthropology and Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society, Western Sydney University. We'll be talking about her book, Jungle Passports, Fences, Mobility and Citizenship at the Northeast India-Bangladesh Border, recently published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Shur, for joining us today. At the New Books Network, we like to start by getting to know our guests. So could you tell us about your background as an anthropologist? How did you come to anthropology and how did you conceive of this book? Thank you, Eliza. Uh, It's really my honor to be in conversation with you across time zones. (laughs) Uh, So I really appreciate you uh, taking out the time and speaking to me about Jungle Passports. So I came to anthropology via my love for fieldwork. You know, I was a student of social work at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. And I had two absolutely amazing teachers, Amita Bhede and Kamini Kapadia, who were guiding me to understand the dynamics and the intricacies of interventionist fieldwork for, for full two years. And... In a sense, you know, I felt that I wanted to do fieldwork all my life. And uh, it was was really at Tata Institute of Social Sciences that also my interest in the partition of the Indian subcontinent, an event that happened in 1947, became an area of intellectual interest for me. And I wrote a dissertation on this subject, uh, you know, relocating gendered identities and studying uh, two um, two generations of women who were displaced by the partition uh, of the Indian subcontinent and relocated from what was formerly Eastern Bengal and that which became East Pakistan to the city of Calcutta. And I was studying their um, uh, gendered identities and gendered role. And I was being supervised by Dr. Padma Velaskar, a sociologist. And these two... Um, you know, areas, fieldwork and a kind of a sociological and gendered lens through which we could understand displacement and resettlement really shaped the ways in which I was thinking about social life. And subsequently, I did a master's in human rights uh, that really uh, shaped the ways I was thinking about the tensions between international law, especially in the context of political violence and the kind of cultural specificities and the, uh, you know, the specific sites in which political violence was being 
embodied and felt in the most gruesome ways. Uh, I worked for four years at the Social Science Research Council uh, in the South Asia program led by E.T. Abraham. And it was really while my, uh, during my time at the SSRC in New York that, you know, this imagination of South Asia as a region and uh, in thinking beyond national boundaries uh, took, took root and uh, subsequently uh, the University of Amsterdam uh, was where I did my PhD and I worked under the anthropologist Willem von Schendel who's also a historian by training and it was at the University of Amsterdam that all these different strands of fieldwork, my interest in partition, uh, you know, the challenges of thinking beyond methodological nationalism, my interest in borders. And Willem had written a book called The Bengal Borderland, mm. which, you know, it was my Bible. Uh, <laughs> all these different strands that I was exposed to uh, as a student came together and I found a very happy, uh, but also a partly disturbing home in anthropology. I conceived of the book in 2015 when I finished the final round of, the, of my fieldwork in Northeast India and Bangladesh. So the book originated in uh, my fieldwork, which started in 2007. And that was a part of my dissertation fieldwork. And I kept going back to the border in various phases until 2015. And it was only um, around May 2015 that mm. I you know, put, I said, fieldwork has to conclude. And I started conceiving of the book. That's fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned how your imaginations and understanding of South Asia came to be. And my next question is about that. So uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the context, could you give us some background about the India-Bangladesh border and the communities you work with? How did focusing on this relatively understudied borderland, borderland enrich your work? So the India-Bangladesh border is uh, 2,000, uh, almost 2,500 miles long. So it's longer than the combined length of the Israel-Palestine and the U.S.-Mexico borders. So if you look at this border at the geopolitical level, it's not a warring borders such as Israel-Palestine or the India-Pakistan borders. And these borders make news more often. And yet the India-Bangladesh border continues to be a site of land and identity conflicts and gross human rights violations. Now, Indian sources estimate that 20 million unauthorized Bangladeshis reside in India. And Indian troops specially suspect Muslim residents who live along India's borders with Bangladesh. Bangladesh, on the other hand, is extremely concerned about smuggling, especially smuggling in illicit, um, uh, you know, uh, cough syrups, which are alcoholic and and drugs. And uh, so the region that I was studying is a region known as Northeast India. It's a region that is geographically isolated from the rest of the Indian territories and is heavily militarized and a little less than the uh, half of the India-Bangladesh border cuts through this region. And India's militarization of states in Northeast India is also seen as a prerequisite for containing armed struggles, for subnationalism, demands for independence and self-determination. And this zone is also uh, 
patrolled in very, very specific ways. Uh, so it's it's a very um, it's a heavily militarized zone that that I was uh, exploring here. Now within this zone, uh, I followed the lives and struggles of Bengali Muslim householders who lived close to the border in Bangladesh's chores and foothills, and they belong to Bangladesh's dominant ethnicity, that is Bengali and religion, Islam. Now just across the border from them. In a very similar landscape in the states of Assam and Meghalaya, I was following the lives of rural societies comprising of Muslims of Bengali origin who depend upon the border for a living. And their presence, because they're Muslims, is also very suspicious, as I was mentioning mm-hmm. to the state. And uh, with India's recent passing of the uh, controversial citizenship amendment, Act, a lot of the people in these regions have been rendered stateless. Now, I also write about the Garos, uh, an indigenous community in this borderland. And uh, what I do is I write about them in 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, that is when I'm talking about Tura, which is a town in northeast India. And today in India, the Garos are constitutionally classified as a scheduled tribe which draws from British colonial classifications. Now, in the post-colonial period, I write about the Garos of uh, East Pakistan and since 1971, Bangladesh. And I'm especially concerned about the gendering of border crossings of Bangladeshi Christian Garo women traders who leave every day from Bangladesh, travel to India and then travel back to trade in markets. Uh, Now, the Garos have very distinct histories and political identities in India and Bangladesh, but I try to show in Jungle Passports how political transformations in this region have reshaped notions of ethnicity, belonging and mobility in the borderland. That's wonderful. And thank you very much for this vivid description of the people and places that we'll be uh, discussing just now. Uh, what was very striking for me in your work was that you contribute to an important body of work on borderlands, which are often on, you know, how lives are interrupted, put on hold, controlled, or brought to an end. Um, but while you make these contributions, you draw our attention elsewhere and trace what propels mobility, identity, and citizenship as you mentioned, and most importantly, what propels life itself? What is at stake in this attunement to life? And what does this approach tell us about emergent forms of life in the India-Bangladeshi borderlands and beyond? Thank you, Eliza. This is a <laughs> question, uh, a really fabulous question. Uh, and I, I really appreciate your engagement with Jungle Passports. Uh, so closely. Um, So what I try to do in Jungle Passports is situate the border as a life force. Mm -hmm. At the heart of this book is a question about what propels life to continue to revolve around a heavily fortified fence, you know, the border fence that India was constructing with Bangladesh Mm -hmm. amidst violence, scarcity, fear and uncertainty. And here I was also trying to explore how long-standing social socio-ecological histories and territorial conflicts severed 
emergent political topographies of mobility, nationalism, and citizenship. And what I was really asking myself is how do the forces that shape the life worlds of deportees, refugees, farmers, traders, migrants, smugglers, bureaucrats, lawyers, and border troops in this region tell us about reciprocity and exchange and the enforcement of state violence, illegality, and border infrastructures in general. And in seeking to answer questions that were at stake in understanding border societies in this specific region, but also beyond, I show how borders continue to gather life's promises, even when walls and checkpoints brutally divide nation states and societies. The book shows how despite the attendant risk, borders push life worlds of mobility, identity, and citizenships, citizenship that are perennially in the making. And what I really try to um, you know, elaborate in this book, uh, I show how the powerful forces that regulate this very fragile balance of life and death at the nation's margin force people to cross borders again and again. And today, more than ever, you know, uh, we are living with a pandemic mm-hmm. where uh, we are seeing, uh, you know, uh, the nation state uh, resurface and emerge uh, extremely strongly. We are living in in a time of closed borders. We are living in a time of extreme state violence. We are living in a time of abjection and insecurity. So these these kind of uh, you know power geometries, as Doreen Massey calls them, become uh, more and more important. So what I what I actually do in Jungle Passports is situate four elements ecologies, infrastructures, exchanges, and mobility. And I show how they work in tandem through permeable boundaries to shape the force of life at the Northeast India border. And, uh, you know, I really feel that the present moment uh, offers a very decisive political time in which efforts to fortress territorial boundaries and this kind of resurgence in ultranationalism are forcing people towards uncertain border uh, crossings and very violent encounters with increasingly hostile states. And, you know, the hardening of borders in the 21st century, I think time and again shows us how force and life become enmeshed, where their productive tensions can be read as will and erasure, and where they mutate the ephemeral and the precarious into the durable. So these are some of the themes that guide the book. And I want to ask you about a particular element, main element of the book, uh, which is mobility, since we're the Mobility is a Methods channel. Um, Throughout the book, you ground mobility in the political salience of borders, showing us how border mobilities shape people's understandings of risk in time. Can you take us through how borders propel particular kinds of mobile subjects and temporal subjectivities? That's a great question. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> and I think we're we're both coming to this question in 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 very different contexts. Mm-hmm. You in Istanbul, 
and me at the northeast india bangladesh border but in strikingly similar ways and i was reading your article in city and society which i found absolutely fabulous so thank you for writing it i'll use it for teaching <laughs> thank you very much um yeah just before you respond i want to also let our readers know that they should check out your cultural anthropology article uh <laughs> which really addresses these questions but i'm also excited to hear what you'll just say <laughs> you know the question of time is absolutely fundamental to understanding border societies and Uh, there's an emergent body of scholars who study militarization, who study waiting, who study boredom. You know, here I'm thinking of Shaharam Khosravi, Ruben Anderson, Emily Ye, and others who've done absolutely path-breaking work, showing how the experience of time and time calculations, uh, you know, the acceleration of time, speed, or the grinding halt of time. You know, waiting, boredom, mm-hmm. eight lives. Uh, make border lives and migrant lives precarious. Uh, so what I really do is that I I have attempted to relocate the study of time in anthropology from moving it, uh, f- being limited to the comparative scholarship of internally coherent religions and national bodies to the very margins of nation and capital. Now let's think about India's border fence with Bangladesh, which first emerged. in a policy document in 1986 now i landed at the border in 2007 and during this entire period of time very little border construction had taken place you know mm-hmm. so it was only in 2007 and as late as 2008 end that india's new border fence with bangladesh was starting to materialize so I was not looking at a fence or a border wall that was already constructed. I was as an ethnographer I was already studying something that was under perennial construction. And I think looking at an infrastructure that is constantly under construction and the different ways in which that you know under construction moment prolongs time. Mm-hmm. You know reshapes the way we think about people's experience of time calculations the uncertainties the risks associated with time but it also enables us to see the different ways in which this new infrastructure provides different kinds of rhythms to the movement of capital and goods across the border and how it reshapes people's notions of belonging now things became very complicated because time was not just about the present and here i think you know there is no other way of uh, there is no other way of understanding the present than being situated in time with people mm-hmm. that we understand societies that we seek to understand and for me anthropology is is i mean there i don't think there is an, any other discipline that can do it <laughs> Uh, as well as anthropology does and i don't think there's a substitute to the ethnographic method in trying to understand the presence but in this instance the presence became very complicated for me because it was not the fence but people were talking about different things now when i started going to the archives like a road when i started going to the archives uh you know when people were talking about things and i could find resonances in the archives 
I had a very uh, smooth connection between the present and uh, and the past. It was almost linear. Wow. But there were other moments in which there was a disjuncture. Like people were talking, people in Bangladesh were talking about a road called the Romaritura Road. So I went to look for it. And this road was constructed in 19th century. So I went to look for it in British colonial archives in Assam, in Meghalaya, and elsewhere. And lo and behold, I couldn't trace the road. Now, there could be two reasons why I couldn't trace it. One, because I'm not trained as a historian. You know, and when you're studying archives as an anthropologist, at least I always felt that the smart historian sitting across me had the right box of documents in which all that I was looking for was accommodated. So that's one reason I couldn't find the road because I'm not traced as a historian, trained as a historian. Sorry. The other reason is because the road is not called by that name, and the road then surfaced in completely unanticipated ways in the archives. So the more I couldn't see this road that people were talking about, but I knew and I sensed that it existed in history, the more I wanted to look and search for it. And then this relationship between time, as in time, the ways in which time is experienced by border societies in in the present, and the histories of time, that people relate to became a far more complicated, uh, uh, you know, engagement for me. And that's when I realized that histories are not linear. They are distributed differently across space and different objects and different animals give us different senses of history. So history is not just about, uh, just as the present is not just about only humans, you know. So I started entering a completely um, uh, you know, uh, a broad world of objects and non-human subjects as well. That's incredible. Um, and, you know, the segues wonderfully into my next question on human-animal relations <laughs> and animal mobility. So in Jungle Passports, we see that border fences generate anxious mobilities, disorienting humans and animals alike. How do these relationships enhance our understanding of border infrastructures and the economic worlds they make? And what kinds of human and non-human subjects emerge as nation-making becomes sutured to the construction of fences, which you, you know, so wonderfully observed over time? That's a fabulous question. Thank you so much, Aliza. Because increasingly, I think there's a very uh, rich body of work. And here I'm thinking about Anu Jale's Forest of Tigers, Radhika mm-hmm. uh, Animal Intimacies. I'm also thinking about Nainika Mathur's new book, Crooked Cats. And, uh, you know, so when I went to the field, uh, you know, I was cohabiting, uh, you know, I was in uh, remote border villages living with pigs, cows, uh, poultry, uh, cats, uh, in some instances, dogs, rabbits, but also elephants, you know. And uh, I mean, anthropology has a very long tradition, uh, you know, in kinship, rooted in kinship that uh, historically reminds us that human lives have always been entangled with the non-human. So there are 
couple of elements that I explore in this book, you know, um, I talk about uh, uh, my entangled world with three goats that I lived with in one specific household uh, in a remote border village in Bangladesh. Uh, I talk about um, an encounter with rabbits and the impact of militarization in uh, in a remote, extremely remote uh, border village in Meghalaya. Uh, I, I, I talk about cattle and the movement of cattle and I show how, uh, you know, the contrasting mobility and immobility of cattle make it such a high value commodity and I follow the value conversion of cattle as it moves between zones where cattle are rendered sacred and pious and where to a zone where cattle is is consumed and highly valued uh, for its meat. And finally, I talk about elephants and elephant states. So there was a specific part of the borderland in which villagers, Garo villagers cohabit uh, with elephants and uh, you know I could see how as the landscape of forests of streams rivers rice paddy fields uh, you know vegetable gardens uh, uh, mud courtyards uh, uh, mud walled and cement cement walled houses with tin roofs how these were gradually undergoing transformations because you had an increasing militarized presence, you had escalated troops patrolling, you had uh, the construction of a fence, and, and along with the fence came a lot of noise, you know, the sounds mm -hmm. of tractors, the sounds of uh, tractors crunching gravel, the sounds of wireless radios, and all of a sudden these remote extremely quiet villages and the elephants were in a particular stretch of the borderland that was very sparsely populated uh, so these were really silent villages you know suddenly transformed into construction hubs wow. very similar to the kind of hubs that you would see in metropolitan cities like turkey for instance mm -hmm. you know, they became very loud noisy spaces and Along with that, uh, you know, there was a lot of timber logging and there was a lot of timber smuggling. So all these factors compounded to completely disturb the elephant corridors in the landscape. But it not just disturbed elephant corridors, it also disturbed the fundamental relationships that the Garo borderlanders living along the border zones of India and Bangladesh had with elephants. They had cohabited uh, this landscape with elephants and for, for centuries, you know, and elephants were also animals that were used to build roads, to fell timber. You know, they were very important subjects and they were also imperial subjects in this landscape under, under British India. So this entire relationship of fear and reverence that Garo villagers had with elephants and the kind of coded curtsies that existed completely underwent transformations and elephant mobilities were disrupted and they changed. And I follow the ways in which these disruptions realigned the relationships that elephants had with human beings. Mm -hmm. And you do that so wonderfully throughout Jungle Passports. 
And thank you so much for you know providing us with such a great sense of um, the places you inhabited and how they informed the way you understand borders and mobility. And with that being said, I want to turn back to the concept of jungle passports and the jungle passport journeys that give this book its name. Uh, so you take the jungle passport as a central IMI concept through which you understand relationships of trust, reciprocity, and kinship, as you mentioned a little bit. But I was wondering if you could elaborate on this concept and tell us what jungle passports reveal about these multiple forms of relating. Thank you. Thank you for this question. So jungle passports, as you say, you know, the title of the book, everybody <laughs> how did you think of it and I'm like those are not my words <laughs> uh, so at the heart at the heart of this conceptualization is uh, my my attempt to show how at borders notions of community and belonging constantly transcend national citizenship and nation states and in this book I show how the values of reciprocity as exchange, trust, dependency, and protection have both political and spatial implications for mitigating extremely unequal relations. And here I'm looking at unequal relations between villagers, border villagers in India and Bangladesh, and extremely heavily armed Indian border troops and Bangladeshi troops. But I'm also looking at the unequal relations between humans and non-human animals. Uh, at the Northeast India-Bangladesh border kinship, and this is really where I'm trying to make an intervention in the anthropology of kinship, is to show how kinship as an all-encompassing moral sphere stretches, extends, and adapts to make life livable and collective beyond the perpetuation of indigenous lineage. And reciprocities that transcend, transcend kinship's prior boundaries, I feel, offer new ways of situating political possibilities at the nation's margins without overdetermining the border's violent ability to impose difference in rule. And I suggest in Jungle Passports that these possibilities extend reciprocity's analytic potential by relocating questions of interdependence and social theory from the narrow confines of received exchanges among kin to include strangers. So that's that's really the endeavor to take, you know, long-standing debates in citizenship um, and belonging, and push them to the domain of kinship. And here I'm thinking of Marshall Salen's work. I'm thinking of Watson's work. I'm thinking of Vina Das's work. And I bring all these authors into conversation, and I push the analytic into this heavily militarized border. And I also show the specific ways in which the gendering of kinship in this borderland actually gives uh, pushes our understanding or advances our understanding of commodities, of gifts, of exchanges, of objects. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's where the thrust is with jungle passports. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I love how you explain the theoretical, the theoretical threads through how you conducted this research and how you show us that it's not 
Um, it's not something separate from fieldwork itself. So I want to talk about methodology a little bit on this note. Um, throughout the book, you show us that um, your fieldwork in particular, at least to me, brings the main assumptions of part- uh, participant observation into question. So instead of seeing and observing, much of your ethnographic labor goes into not seeing at times. And at the same time, you show us that the act of being present at the border was also central to your ethnographic work. So I'm curious whether you consider not seeing as a method and how did both presence and not seeing figure into your fieldwork and writing? Thank you so much for this question, Elisa. So, you know, uh, I was constantly moving mm-hmm. for various reasons. One, because I was studying, uh, you know, stretches of the border on both sides. So I was following the construction work of the fence uh, along uh, border villages in India. And then I was following... Uh, the construction along Bangladesh. Uh, so I think border field work and the study of borderland societies are inherently multi-sided. But multi-sided ethnography is not just a precondition. I felt in militarized borders, in borderlands, which shift, shift continuously to these from these very idyllic, serene location into extraordinary sites of violence and abjection, multi-sided fieldwork and multi-sided ethnography then becomes uh, a necessity. It's no longer a privilege that anthropologists engage in. You know, these transnational worlds have their own complexities and violences woven into the texture of these transnational worlds in various ways. And um, so that that was one learning, that I had to be multi-sided to ensure the safety of the societies I was studying and also to uh, ensure my my own safety. Now, uh, there's a time, you know, when you get, when people shut their doors on you and then there there comes a time in fieldwork when people really take a liking to you. (laughs) And in my case, because I was trained in fieldwork at Tata Institute of Social Sciences, that, that came very fast. So there were moments in which I was living with families and I couldn't follow the conversation because these were very controversial conversations. And, uh, you know, it took me a month to figure out some of these conversations. And then when I had the knowledge, I was so frightened. I didn't know what to do with it. So my field notes are, uh, you know, I, I started writing my field notes with with a lot of codes hmm. so anything that i felt was controversial uh, was written down in codes and now sitting in sydney when i read uh, you know my coded fieldwork mm-hmm. i can smile but at that moment it's also what do i do with this the risks uh, that i am inherently taking by just being there in a militarized location mm-hmm. you know so uh, the the endeavor of seeing became important, but equally the endeavor of not seeing and erasing 
became a way of just surviving the landscape and also a way of ensuring that people I was living with, mm-hmm. they were not. Yeah. Um, that makes me think about a quote from the introduction that really stuck with me. You say, even after I had left the border, it continued to shape my mind and body. How did you cope with this embodied porosity of borderlands during your fieldwork and during the writing process? You know, in the first uh, phase of my fieldwork, which lasted for almost a year, uh, I had almost lost control of my uh, bodily senses, you know. That kind of a constant exposure to a militarized environment had ensured that uh, I was experiencing varying degrees of numbness. But in effect, these, these registers of numbness had also made my nerves and um, and uh, my body extremely prone to the kind of nervous jumpiness, uh, mm-hmm. you know, immortal in Mike Tosic's writings. Uh, when I came back from fieldwork, I returned to fieldwork field again. And it was the intensity of my trauma and my trauma dreams that Uh, actually led me back to the field until 2015 because there were all these little strands that I still needed to resolve, people that I still needed to see, people alive and dead that I needed to see, graves that I needed to visit. Uh, and uh, I kept returning to field work. And that that made me also reflect about anthropological fieldwork, and especially the labor of ethnography in militarized location. And, you know, we study uh, anthropology as as an intervention in location and culture, but uh, an exposure to the ethnographic uh, labor that is required in militarized border location also led me to believe that anthropology could be uh, a perennial sense of dislocation. Because the the intellectual labor of anthropology demands iterative redwelling. You're constantly reviving fieldwork. You're constantly re- reliving fieldwork, you know. And fieldwork continually emerges, it flows, and it, re- it continually resurfaces across different stages of ethnographic labor and writing. You can never say... My fieldwork has ended, and now I'm right. The moment you listen to your recorded interviews, the moment you go back to the photographs that you've taken, the moment you go back to your field notes, you're constantly reliving fieldwork. And this, for for me, writing anthropology required the you know the repeated reliving of uh, immersive you know near death experiences the sufferings, the traumas of those I lived with and I traveled with, as well as those who posed dangers to my life. So it was this constant uh, reliving uh, of fieldwork that made writing anthropology a completely different exercise for me. Indeed. And I just want to thank you a moment to... Uh, take a moment to thank you for sharing this with us and you know i'm sure that 
um, these experiences will be very helpful for some of our listeners who might be sort of in the weeds of uh, similar fieldwork experiences. Um, and I want to return to the question of archives, um, <laughs> not on whether, you know, you did it as effectively as a historian or not, but um, what really was striking to me was that your archival research consisted not only of formal archives, but also of the documents and maps your interlocutors collated to produce their own historical narratives. Um, can you take us through this process? How did drawing on both formal and informal archival resources and epistemologies enhance your work? Thank you so much for this question. You know, initially I started uh, visiting various state uh, archives and public archives in Northeast India when I couldn't access these remote border villages because there were incidents that uh, uh, there were incidents and there were, uh, you know, demands of self-determination and there were violent incidents that impeded my access to the border and I couldn't travel. So I thought, you know, why don't I go to these um, archives and try and get a sense of the region that I'm uh, uh, studying? And I started poring over very old tattered maps and I was trying to get a sense of uh, the visual representation of this region at, as it existed 100 or even 200 years ago. And it was when I was seeing through these documents that I realized that the violence that people were experiencing at the border and in these regions were not recent. It was not just immediate, uh, but it was historical mm -hmm. and it had unfolded in this region in completely uneven and unanticipated ways. Now, when I was doing fieldwork in um, very remote border villages, uh, I had the good fortune of being sheltered in various religious organizations, uh, including churches. And it was in one of these churches at the end of the day that Mother Superior was sitting down with a huge register and she was handwriting incidents that happened during the day. And I asked her, what are you doing? She's like, oh, this is a historical practice. Mm -hmm. And this is where we note down all that has happened during the day. Wow. And mind you, you are also being noted in this register. The <laughs> fact that you've asked questions, you're living with us. And I've also noted that you've attended the church service today. And that was when I realized that all these churches in this region were repositories of political histories because you had handwritten notes that were not state-led notes, you know. So by looking at these old historical handwritten diaries that were chronicled by priests and by nuns for over a hundred years in this region, I got a glimpse of what was going on politically in terms of nation building and border making in this region beyond what, uh, you know, the states of British India, Bangladesh, East Pakistan and India were, were conveying to people. So I got a sense of histories that were beyond the nation states. Secondly, wherever I went, people took out old documents out of 
you know, old tin trunks and I had uh, village land surveyors showing me old maps and each of these old historical documents that were not confined to the archives, but they actually had a life of their own in these villages and they were being used, reproduced. And this is something that I also write about in terms of the documentation in the foreigners' tribunals in Assam, you know, mm-hmm. the, the distinct uses of identity documents. So all these archival documents became very central to jungle passports. That is fascinating. Before we end, I want to ask you, what is next for you? What are some new projects, pieces of writing, or even classes you're working on right now? So let, let me begin with, uh, with teaching. I, I greatly enjoy teaching. Uh, I teach anthropology and sociology at the School of Social Sciences at Western Sydney University. And I must tell you that it's really here that students have tested a lot of my ideas on nation states, gender, diversity, multiculturalism, and indeed borders. Uh, So I've continued uh, working on the themes of infrastructure, ecology, and climate, themes that have been central to jungle passports, but I've kind of shifted gears uh, and uh, I'm looking at, uh, you know, for the last uh, four years, I've been conducting fieldwork with uh, bicycling activists in the city of Calcutta in India, and I've been studying cycle repair uh, shops, and I've been looking at the different ways in which degraded air and pollution materializes through terrestrial processes and how they reshape people's access to space and the new kind of atmospheric politics that air pollution and climate change brings in densely populated and congested uh, cities of the global south. And I've also directed my first documentary film, Life Cycle, uh, (laughs) which is about um, bicycling politics in India. And uh, so I'm continuing on this theme as far as India and Bangladesh is concerned, but I'm also uh, doing new work on climate and mobility in Australia, which has been my academic home for the last five years. Wow, these sound really fascinating. And we'll be really looking forward to these new writings and documentaries and classes. So thank you very much, Dr. Shur for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much, Elisa. It was an honor to speak to you. Thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. I'm your host, Elisa Rja. This discussion of jungle passports, fences, mobility, and citizenship at the Northeast India-Bangladesh border, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.